Hey, hey, new episode of Rocket to the Cloud coming right at you. Welcome once again to a new episode of Rocket to the Cloud, the show where we converse with leaders and decision makers in software development and cloud computing. As usual, this show is made possible by Booster, the open source initiative by the Agile Monkeys with a mission to disrupt the cloud industry, redefine developer experience, and thus multiplying joy and productivity by 10. With Booster, you can develop event-driven applications, and with next to zero configuration, you can have them deployed effectively to multiple cloud providers with all the infrastructure inferred from the code and the framework taking care of provisioning the necessary resources. And because it's an open source project, contributions are welcome. You'll find a link to Booster's GitHub in the description and also on www.booster.cloud. Our guest on this episode is Eduardo Lauriano. He's currently a technical program manager at Facebook, overseeing things related to Facebook's infrastructure, making sure that not just Facebook, but WhatsApp and Instagram don't break. He also spent nearly 20 years at Microsoft, starting out as a developer for the Windows platform, then moving on to the cloud and eventually leading the Azure Functions team. Let's check out what he had to share with us. Okay, hello, Eduardo. How are you doing? Doing good, Mario. Thanks, thanks for inviting me to chat with you. No, thank you for accepting to be a guest on our seventh episode of Rocket to the Cloud. You know, there's definitely a lot of things that we can talk about because you have uh, you've been in tech for 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 many years. So um, you started working for uh, Microsoft almost 20 years ago, and uh, we're in 2021. That's like almost 20 years, nearly two <laughs> decades that you've been involved in 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 one of the big players in tech, which yeah. is Microsoft, and now you're part of Facebook. So yeah. I want to start out a conversation asking you, what would you say have been the most significant changes in, well, Microsoft, uh, but not just Microsoft, but I guess the industry as a whole in tech in general? It's funny to look, look that far back, right? And um, I'm going even farther than those 20 years, like, I remember I went to school, to college back in Brazil, and um, I got super fascinated with software engineering, with the fact that we should make developers and, and anyone that's building software lives easier. The code needs to be easy to maintain, easy to replace, reliable, performant, all that good stuff. I feel that has been constant in my life. Like I learned all this Oh, we're, when you study software engineers, like, oh, you need to build your code modular. So it's easy for people to maintain. You need to, you know, if you do object oriented, you have to have your classes in a certain way. So the next person can understand what you have, use interfaces and things like that. Right. So, so you join, uh, I joined uh, Microsoft. My first product was a setup box uh, recording thing. When that was a thing, kind of like <laughs> people used to record TV and they could, burn that to a DVD. I think the young audience will not even know what that is, but you could do that with your TV shows. And back then, the, a lot of the focus was um, how to make the Windows code base, what I worked at first. How could you make that modern? How could you make that performant and reliable? 
And many, many years later, uh, which was my last five years at Microsoft, I was five to six years, I was working on the cloud. And on the cloud, the same challenge is like how we make the developer's life as easy as possible. And I know me and you're going to probably chat more about this, but I went on this whole mission of how do I take what I learned back in school? How do you make developer's life easier? But how different, which is how do you adopt the cloud in a way that you can abstract a lot of the things that goes on in a computer back then, but now in a set of computers, which is the cloud, where everything's naturally distributed, compute, storage, networking, and make this as simple as possible and as reliable as possible, as maintainable as possible. So for me, that was the constant. I think the biggest difference was you, we went from a single box from things that were built that the product, first product I worked, you would ship a computer that would run in your living room, which is kind of crazy to think about. You'd have a desktop right under your TV, hooked up to it, hooked up to your TV cable to record things. And you'd have to make that software as good as possible there. Windows and now deploy your application. It was going to go and run on a browser, run on a phone or something. And it's going to leverage this massive infrastructure of the cloud. Uh, either in my current job, which is a sort of a, there's a private cloud type of infrastructure or in Azure where it was a public cloud. So, so the, I think the difference is the magnitude and the scale and how much software is all around us as it was 20 years ago. It's, it's, it's when we feel we can't go any further, everything is software. Now it's like voice control and machine learning and, and powers our devices and our regular lives and our lamps and lights, right? So so I think I think just the the scale of software where it reached is the biggest difference. And uh, you were a part of, 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 of Azure during their early days uh, as a product. And um, how do you feel that Azure um, has fared, you know, against the other the other cloud providers, you, the big the elephant in the room, which is AWS. If you could tell us uh, more about, um, you know, your time at Azure and uh, the evolution that you've seen. Yeah, it was, um, um, I was, I would say I was like the golden age of Azure was from, 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 you know, being like, um, um, not established to very well established, like, uh, to the point that I remember when I started working on Azure, people didn't even know how to say the name Azure. They didn't even know what that was about. And, um, um, I think Microsoft had a lot of the building blocks. If you think about it with, with very strong business in the windows server. So I already had that, like had teams that worked on storage or network and compute and bring that all together. Right. So, so I think, um, I think Microsoft added some really key elements and key pieces, which is it's great to have all the servers in the cloud that you can leverage and all the services. You would have VMs, you'd have higher abstraction services. I personally always work in compute. So you could have either your virtual machines, but you could have like platforms as a service. You could have serverless on top of it. So, so I was always on platforms as a service and serverless, higher level of abstractions, if you will. Um, right. And in, in that in that um, in that world, uh, go higher level abstractions is not only what the cloud can provide, but how you're going to interact with the cloud. So uh, the fact that Microsoft is the same company that has Visual Studio Code and all that knowledge that built over the years with Visual Studio reverted into this open source tooling, easy to use, pretty lightweight, that the world. Took, took it over, right? Like everybody uses it. I'll go to, I won't name them. I'll go to competitors conference and they'll be using Visual Studio Code, right? They would be the biggest Microsoft rivals, but they would use Visual Studio Code. 
Um, and then later on GitHub as well. So the fact that we're able to go from where developers, application developers are all the way to where their code is stored and runs and scale and the cloud that you can trust. I think that was, I, I seen that evolve. That was during my time there, I seen that. I seen like how we integrate with Visual Studio Code more naturally. How do we integrate with uh, CI CD pipeline and Azure has has those tools as well. Inner loop and outer loop of your development. So. So that's the neck of woods I was in between uh, the product specifically was Azure App Service. I worked on at first. Um, I think back then it used to be called Azure Websites and uh, in Azure Functions uh, where, where I was there since sort of the beginning of Azure Functions. Um, and, but in, uh, I think a question even broader in terms of Azure, we seen just as a business, Azure grow so much, like tons of workload and Azure getting the services better and better. AWS, uh, and I have a deep, uh, uh, I think it's impressive of what they have there. I, I totally, I, yeah. Like it's it's amazing how they got to where they were, and Azure coming like sort of a few years later in many things in my the world I was in, which is we came a few years later. Functions to Lambda, and we can go into that in a little bit, but um, but I was able to gain the ground that Azure gained it was really impressive to be able to close massive deals and then like ramp up things like Kubernetes, right? Kubernetes not started in Azure, but they, we incorporated it to provide the service super successful. Same thing serverless, not necessarily started, but we incorporated it. So, so some things were started by Microsoft and then Microsoft had the leading position coming in, but some of them was like, can we catch up? And, and we did catch up incredibly. Some of them we passed in our number one. I haven't seen the latest uh, Gartner Magic Quadrant that compares the cloud providers, but I see Microsoft always in the like the top right quadrant, which is the one you want to be in across the board. So, so, so it's been amazing. Like the the the, the business intact together, the, the the progress of of, um, of Azure. But I see AWS still like the if you overall market share, AWS still still ahead in in, in a few ways. But Azure is a very close competitor. And what would you say that Azure is doing better than AWS and, um, well, not just AWS, but I guess you could consider also GCP, Oracle Cloud, IBM, Alibaba, all the other clouds. And in which areas Azure um, could could use some some improvement in in, in, its, in its in its in its uh, cloud offerings. Uh, so talking again to this world of application developers, which is which is the part I um, I. I I lived through a little more. So I think we we understood early that there's so many services on any of them, on AWS. I think we joke there's someone that, uh, there's a video, a meme out there that the person does a two, three minute video that they do a song that they mention every single AWS service in the song, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. and most people can't name them all, right? Um, I think same thing with Azure, but us realizing that it's a complex world and developers sometimes just want to get a job done Either they want to do like a little train a model and they want to do some Python inference or something. They don't need to know all of that. They don't need to know how to stitch everything together and the ramp up and the adoption curve can be really rough uh, on, on, on a given cloud. And if you switch clouds, imagine you're relearning things, right? So, so I think we realized that like the experiences part, like even very early days, you can see how Microsoft felt about it. Like I think the Azure portal, is one testament to it. I think was always sort of ahead of the other portals on how you manage your cloud resources. We always thought of 
experiences matter. Your interaction with the cloud matters. So if you're a developer, let's start the dev tooling. That's your place of start. Let's introduce you into the service without overwhelming you into learning 40 different things. And then it's very easy for you to try and adopt and eventually scale, eventually take your full-on production workload. So I think that would be, if I had to name the main one, I think in terms of experiences, I think Azure in general, and that's across the board. I'm, I'm taking the examples of, but Cosmos DB has a great experience. I took compute as an example, but across the board, I feel like um, um, Azure does particularly well. Um, I think um, I think what was um, when you compare like what AWS does well, I think some of the the business and the pricing model is really incredible. Like sometimes really <laughs> that they launch and you're like, how can that? How can this be so cheap in many ways? Right? How can they do that at scale for this price point? Like serverless is a common example of that, but there are other services that are getting pressed that can scale that far without a price point that's crazy expensive kind of thing. So that attracts masses to, to adopt things. It, it's funny that you mentioned pricing and AWS because I don't know if you know uh, Corey Quinn and yep. the Duckbill Group. You know, they're specialized in, you know, reading and understanding your AWS billing that it's it appears to be some sort of very complicated and I don't know. Uh, um, I sometimes fear that if I have something running at AWS, I forget to turn it off and then I'm going to get this bill for $1,000 because I forgot to turn off some um, some EC2 <laughs> instance or something. So <laughs> funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. But my, my point, yeah, the, the bill, <laughs> any cloud bill is a little complicated because you get like, yeah. I, like I didn't know that much network egress, right? Like I didn't know my data was still living elsewhere and I'm still paying for this database. So um, my point is more like they can provide a service that, that is affordable for, for startups and for small businesses in, in many, many dimensions, compute networking storage, right? So, um, so for me, in do that scale and something that works both for the small business and the super large enterprise is hard. I think Microsoft historically before the cloud business, excellent at enterprise, not as much known as a consumer company, right? Like it's not Apple, right? So, so how do you right. make something that every business of all sizes can adopt? I think that, I think um, AWS does really well. And what do you think of the, uh, of the new services that are coming out, uh, which have a more predictable pricing and a more oriented towards startups? I'm thinking, you know, for example, like Netlify. You know, they provide, uh, you know, they start with, with very specific stuff of having, you know, your stuff, your static websites deployed on the edge, but now they're adding, you know, compute with functions and all that kind of stuff with a predictable price. It's like, okay, it's $5 or $10 and you don't have to use a calculator to, to, to get an estimate. Yeah, I, I like I like Netlify, by, by the way, in general, I think the, the proposition, um, not... That angle is also good, but the fact that it's all integrated, it's all a single thing. You get functions, you get your site, you get your front end, you get you get your JavaScript, you get it all in one place. So I like that about Netlify. The predictability, when you go into serverless, for instance, it's somewhat of a problem. Like you go talk to, right. to some CTOs and they're like, look, I need to plan my budget for the next fiscal year. How much I'm going to spend on this? And he comes to someone like me when I was talking about serverless and be like, Hey, do you know how much I'm going to spend with this 100 applications I have? I was like, nope. 
can you give me a clue? I was like, well, I don't know. You need to, I know the patterns of use, right? Like, does it scale out? Does it not scale out? How much running time? You need to give me, do you even know how much memory it consumes? Because serverless, you pay on uh, memory multiplied by seconds that you run or milliseconds, right? Without the data points, I can't, you know, I can't really, really predict. So, so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like the predictability, sometimes CTOs appreciate that. Uh, I think the, the serverless type of pattern that it's a curve and you calculate the area under the curve to calculate the price. It's not very easy to reason to future workloads. So if you have a workload that you can test, then you can totally predict you test and you can test on peak load and, and, and every, you know, medium, and then you can estimate, but without for applications that don't even exist. That becomes a much harder exercise. Uh, so, so I do, yeah, I do think it's interesting to have predictability. I think actual functions has some options, by the way, not that I need to sell that service anymore <laughs> for a more yeah. team that's there. Uh, uh, they have some options that you can, you can, um, you can also have more predictable, uh, reserved instances and things like that. So that will be more predictable. So speaking of Azure Functions, you led that team for almost uh, four years. So um, now talking, you know, about not just Azure Functions, but serverless as a whole, what have been, in your opinion, the biggest challenges for organizations to adopt uh, serverless um, architectures, you know, into their, um, into their systems? Um, I don't know, because sometimes people just see serverless as synonymous with functions, just one function that do something. Um, do you think that... So, you know, being synonymous with functions is an impediment to wider adoption? Um, par partially, yes. Uh, I think there are many hindrances to adoption, I would say. And by the way, both serverless and Azure Functions, they both grow well. It's not like they might not be as uh, much of a hockey stick compared to Kubernetes, right? I was watching the yeah. previous, previous guests on Kubernetes. <laughs> but um, so... But it's but but what 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 prevents adoption? And we we looked into that deeply when I was there. So so a few things is being functions to hit exactly what you mentioned, which is means you have to code things in a certain way. So if you have tons of legacy code, do you want to like even changing the function signature and move your code or moving from monolith to microservices? Right. Every time we talk about touching existing code, that that you know that's sensitive because now you can cause bugs you're going to cause actual engineering work and and there's a rule if things are working don't touch it kind of thing right not yeah. only that i think someone was telling me the deployed code base in the world is some um, massive amount of java is still out there right so so do you want to touch that java legacy code or even things from even further back and change it so that can hinder adoption for sure the fact that you have to rewrite so we always recommended doing new workloads or extending what you had. Like every time we want to talk to customers, even if I want them to use functions as much as possible, we only go and say, hey, look, nobody touches for 10 years, change all of it to functions. Now we, we always said, hey, extend it, make sure you do the new workloads on it. that's going to be best for you. So yes, that's a, a little bit of a, um, a hindrance uh, that way. And then there's the other known serverless hindrances, which is the code start factor. So if you put something in the machine that's dormant, it, you're going to pay a penalty. Even if the penalty is small, some services can't afford that small penalty of bringing the code back up and be warm in a, in a server in the cloud to run. 
Um, so that's that's a typical one. The predictability that we mentioned about some CTOs would be a little like, oh, I'm not sure I want this thing that can get away from me because one, I don't know how much it's going to spend. And the fact that we scale out as much as possible, if you get a DDoS, you're going to scale out. If you don't, if you don't have the protection, your code's now attacked. You're going to scale yeah. up and you're going to pay for that bill. I mean, in practicality, we haven't seen a big problem with any of that, but some people do worry about, about that. So, so those are some of the things. The last part is, which is good and bad about serverless. Serverless is a lot of generic compute. I, um, there is, um, in AWS, if I remember correctly, uh, you pick the amount of memory you want and you deploy your code and then you run on that code. But a lot of the workloads now, you need very specific compute, like uh, accelerated CPU, like GPUs, FPGAs, and things like that. And then serverless doesn't cater to some of that scenario as well. So, so being generic compute is great because, because then you don't have to worry about it. If, if your code runs in one machine, it's going to run in all of the fleet. But if you, on the other hand, needed to run in very specific, either location or type of machine, then serverless is limiting there. Like some, there's some companies specialize on it. Sometimes you want to run serverless as close to the customer as possible in the points of presence, if you will, right? Like on the edge of the network kind of thing. But right. not, like lumped at the edge, I guess, does that. But a different product is not even the same product, right? So, so there's that's also not a limiting factor. Like you, you, it's too generic for some scenarios. And what about, um, you know, you know, like event-driven systems, you know, serverless and event-driven, it's, it, you know, it's event-driven systems or architecture, they seem to go like hand in hand. So have you seen more event-driven systems that make the best use of serverless, whether it's functions, Lambda, et cetera, and, you know, the associated cloud-native tooling? Um, or I guess uh, most people are still relying on microservices, on containers and having, you know, streaming platforms, having Kafka and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's funny, it's very really like the serverless and event-driven architectures, they almost like they're together, right? Like you, in the case of Azure Functions, because it's opinionated, you need something to trigger a function. And like you said, yeah. be streaming, it can be something happened in storage you mentioned earlier too, right? It can be all these different things. Like HTTP became widely popular because that's, that's an event if you think about it, although HTTP does in many ways, it's more common when you interact with a browser, the interaction is synchronous, although a lot of event-driven can be asynchronous by nature, fire, forget kind of thing. Whereas the HTTP protocol, you're gonna respond and you're gonna put something back on, on the browser, right? But um, right. but those things like, they they evolve together. Like we've seen we've seen this, the sort of the eventing, the messaging protocol, like in types of pattern evolve and more customers be willing to think in an event-driven way. Like, uh, that was never a problem. We talked about uh, adoption hindrances. The fact that functions are event-driven, actually people grasp was like, oh, this is an event. Sometimes events time. Sometimes is run every four hours, but that's an event. The, the, the hour hand hits something and that causes your code to run, yeah. right? So, um, so I, I think, um, we saw both of them evolve, um, um, I, and there is a lot of uh, open source standards too that that got incorporated, and we adopted, and we interacted with them as well. And what do you think about all the stuff that's coming out? Uh, you know, 
in the case of Azure, there's container instances. Google had Cloud Run, AWS has Fargate, and uh, you know even Lambda. They're supporting containers, and I, I think what they're trying to do is is it's take the best of both worlds. You know, taking the best of serverless, which is you know uh, invisible infrastructure and building by the second or by the amount of memory used, but they're also taking you know the what you mentioned about uh, you know legacy code, the fact that you can be able to containerize your legacy code and it makes it portable and it gives you you know a certain amount of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that you know the lines are kind of blurring and that the future of you know serverless it's it's going to be less about functions and it's going to be more about you know these hybrid models working alongside with containers and uh, it's it's funny to say like it has always been. It used to be a fight, almost. It would be like, if you're a function yeah. person, like, don't bring me containers. If you're a containers person, don't bring me a function. You know, like, always, people had camps. You'd go to conferences, there were camps. Uh, now it's much more integrated. I think um, all of these offerings, um, Azure Functions included, uh, Azure Functions has options for you to bring containers. Um, um, seems like Lambda also has. <laughs> uh, and, um, and Google Cloud Run. I think there's, there's room for both. I think if you're if you're taking the legacy code is a great example. If you're taking code that does exist and you want the shortest possible path to make it scale out and back in, which is probably one of the best properties of serverless that people love about serverless, then then the container options I think they're they're wonderful. Like if you're already developing containers, you like that predictability that you test that container locally, it's the same way it behaves in the cloud, you know the goodness that comes with it, and you're familiar with the tooling, it's great. We, what we never liked is the container overhead. Like we never wanted to push a container if you don't need to. If you, all you want is you say, Hey, I want, I want a stream. And every time data is flowing through my stream, I want to filter some of the content of the stream and let, let the good content flow and the bad content to be put in a separate queue. If you want the workload like this, you don't need to have a container. You don't even need to know Docker, how to use Docker. You can just write that code, the programming model makes this as simple as possible in terms of AI. Something that we could literally test a developer going through and he'll be just way efficient of doing this than having to think about a lot of other aspects of it that and the function run on a runtime, it takes care of a lot of things for you, like a common logging platform, right? Make sure it controls the memory for you. Make sure you have sort of that sandbox safe environment for your code to run. Um, so. So I think there's room for both is what I'm trying to say. I think there's containers. It's good either because you are into containers, the best way for you to package your code, the best way for you to take a production or because you're putting legacy code. But for new workloads, I still believe like getting into the programming model, understanding it is a lot of advantages in the long run. Um, the side, the one reason though, some folks like container better and we didn't talk about this uh, here yet is they feel the lock-in is not as big because they always fear this thing yeah. of vendor lock-in. If I adopt Lambda, oh gosh, you know, AWS Lambda, oh, now, now I'm stuck with AWS forever or Azure Functions. And the container, even Kubernetes give you that feeling that, oh, I have a container and I'm not dependent on this cloud provider. I can take my containers elsewhere. However, that's... Then I know how much you want me to go into lock-in, but in my opinion is a little different, which is there are many other things that cause a cloud lock-in, like your data probably being one of the biggest ones, right? Like, or the other services you use, like the logging service you're gonna use, the analytics tools you're gonna use, like there's so many other things around messaging 
the combination of it, truly, yes, you might be locked into a cloud because translating all of that to a different cloud provider is can be tricky. But just compute piece, people sometimes over-focus on the compute piece, not being locked in the compute piece, but um, I don't think that's the battle you should <laughs> necessarily want to fight. <laughs> And you talked about, um, you know, Azure, you know, taking a lot of care in, you know, in making a great experience for developers, you know, the developer experience. So what are your thoughts on, on all the, the, the tooling that, uh, that is, that, that's surrounding, you know, the, the, the serverless, uh, around the serverless, uh, ecosystem, you know, I'm thinking, for example, frameworks, you've got the serverless frameworks, um, tooling like, uh, functions on VS code and all that kind of stuff of the, the things that we're working on at the Agile Monkeys, for example, the, the booster framework. Um, have you seen anything that um, has caught your attention? Um, first of all, I think it's super important to have a, like a healthy ecosystem out there, right? That has different vendors providing different things. Um, I've seen folks that do things from to go from designing, like literally designing kind of like on a whiteboard or on a canvas, what your application like, and they scaffold your, your functions for you. And then later on, they feed it back. If you already have code, they can also draw the diagram and then monitor things for you. So, so there's so many cool things. So that's one that I remember seeing that was really cool that I, I liked. I, I love that idea of, as you're architecting things, how do you translate that to code, making that as easy as possible? That's That's one. You think caught my eye. That's one that I always, always like that idea. Um, I like all the different observability tools out there. There are tons of folks that do it. And observability sometimes is more than code. There's no what goes on in your data, inspecting data, inspecting the fields of your data, privacy. It's on everyone's mind, especially at my new company. So it's like inspecting yep. data that's going in and out from one side to the other. Um, so I think the ecosystem is great. There, there are a bunch of um, um, vendors out there. Um, I don't want to mention it so I don't get the names wrong because it's been a while since I talked to any of them. Um, uh, I think the opportunity though, a huge opportunity for vendors is um, to cut across cloud providers. In reality, if you think of developers themselves, I don't think they particularly have allegiance to one cloud versus the other. They want to get their stuff done. Their company might because they have an enterprise agreement and therefore there's money on it, so you're going to buy to it. But they want to um, learn different things. So, so I think having this ecosystem that cuts across the clouds, I think serverless, serverless.com did a good job of doing multi-cloud things. So I can write my, I can write using their tooling, but I could deploy to Azure or deploy to AWS or deploy to Google Cloud, right? So I think having that layer of abstraction from the clouds itself and having a tooling that's really efficient, that's a huge opportunity, something I like. And that goes for observability, other parts of the tooling ecosystem, just cutting across all cloud providers. And addresses my previous point of the vendor lock-in, because potentially, instead of vendor lock-in on the cloud, you're locked into a tooling thing, which you might feel better yeah. about, but anyways, but, but they kind of provide interfaces. So you're not having to learn as many services, hopefully. Right. So I want to talk about a bit now about uh, Facebook, which is your current employer. So um, I want to start out by asking, you know, the following. So the big cloud providers, we talk about Amazon, Microsoft, Google, etc. So they compete in providing customer facing services. Right. And and well, they compete. What one of the 
the, they compete, you know, with regards to pricing, but there's also an emphasis in developer experience, which we, which we talked about just mm-hmm. recently. So whereas Facebook, everything is in for internal use, right? All the infrastructure tooling. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because you've, you know, in been been using the, the this tooling, is the same care in developer experience found in Facebook's internal tooling, you know, considering that, you know, their line of business not selling services for developers? Um, yes, the, the, the answer is yes. Like, um, Facebook is very, um, is very driven towards, towards results, like in terms of building tech, because tech's not the product that they sell. I mean, they sell the experiences, right? They sell Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus and and Facebook. But so, so it's really purposely built. We build things to be as efficient as possible and as agile as possible. So, right. so all the tooling and, and without me disclosing, you can, there are thousands of developers in the company. So all the tooling makes sense to invest on tooling to make these developers productive. Like, um, I think, uh, that, um, uh, the CICD pipeline there deploys every couple hours or so it deploys new code to production all the time. So if you don't have a great like build system and testing system and integration system, there's no way you can deploy this often without causing an outage from time <laughs> to time, right? So, so it is a priority that whole teams uh, invested on, on tooling there. And there are, as you would imagine, although it's all infra, there's the different levels of abstractions. You, even within the company, you can say, hey, I wanna go serverless, if you will. I wanna deploy my code. Here's what triggers my code. Here's the event. When this data point changes, I want my code to run. I don't know, do some long-term storage and then go to sleep. We have that. We have sort of serverless within the company because there are millions of servers. So there's capacity, same problem. We want to leverage that capacity as well as possible. So we scale out and back in quickly, freeze up machines that we can use elsewhere. So we have serverless, but we also have container. We have container infrastructure. We have our own container management system. Uh, so all layers of the stack that you can think in the cloud of compute exists there uh, at Facebook. Uh, a lot of it uh, proprietary technology, but but it does exist. And you know, considering Facebook's massive infrastructure, has the company ever had the idea to, I guess, become another competitor in the public cloud? Trying um, to compete against AWS and Microsoft. It's funny you ask me. It wasn't the first questions I asked folks there as I was joining. I was like, "Hey, look, you 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 all have this." They have their own Kubernetes systems. I was so amazed, like it's called Twine externally. And container management system does all the things. There's, you know, there's the front end, there's a scheduler, you know, puts your containers to run, monitoring, logging, all that good stuff. And I was like, wow, you, you built all this. I mean, it shouldn't be hard if you wanna go, go and, and now take external customers because you have literally thousands tens of thousands of customers internally. So, um, so anyways, but it doesn't align, first of all. Uh, well, the answer was no, it was a, it was a very clear no. <laughs> um, <laughs> p- part, of, part of it is, it's not the mission, at least the mission as it is of the company. The mission of the company is still social, social, social power, right? And right. community. So, so it doesn't align there. Um, the other part is it is so purposely built that we make trade-offs. We say, Hey, look, like, let's say now, now in the company that's that, and it's clearly that we have to do even further machine learning. 
be able to train models with fewer signals and do better models. So we can do trade-offs to say, hey, look, data centers, it's not something you build overnight. We only have so many, a little, a little over 15. Um, and we need to trade space to put machines and a cluster of machine learning machines in there and trade that for existing machines. So because the company is so small, we can make those trades. We can say, so not so small. It's uh, within control of the customers. We can make such trades of infrastructure that allows for the company needs. If you have a cloud, if your cloud provider is very different, you need to keep up with the promises and the services are running. And you have right. to keep up run as long as people pay for you. Whereas there, we can have those conversations across the company to say, look, let's purposely build for the challenges that current scenarios that we have in the company. So, so I think, um, I don't think even Facebook wants to do so far from the public cloud providers, I think, because one, um, and I've seen this a little bit in the industry, uh, like it's not always the tech, it's not only the tech. You have to be able to charge. You have to be able to have a business. You have to be able to conquer the customers. You have to be able to migrate code, migrate applications to your cloud. There's a whole business side. Like I think in Azure, AWS, I mentioned the same. I think the non-technical team is probably bigger than the technical team in the cloud, which is crazy. Like yeah. the people that build the technology that you use, but there's there's sales, there's pre-sales architect, architects, there are post-sales people, there's uh, customer, there's support teams, there's so all of that, it's a company on itself. Like it's, it's in the case of, uh, of Azure, it's over 10,000 people. I don't know that exact number, but um, um, Google too, that there's the people that make the cloud business, right? Right. So I think Facebook, one, doesn't have that arm as in a company structure. And in terms of tech, it's not tech that was meant, it, it's tech that's meant to be replaced as the business evolves. It's not meant to be kept around because there are customers. There's no... The motivation is just advance the business there. And so I want to ask you now, so you know, Facebook has been notorious for its big acquisitions. You know, you've got Instagram, we mentioned Oculus, and then WhatsApp. Um, well, you joined Facebook in last year, but you probably, are you aware of the challenges that, you know, the engineers at Facebook face when they had to integrate, you know, these already ex existing services and their own infrastructure, which, uh, it wasn't, I'm pretty sure it wasn't small. It wasn't something that, you know, they could just uh, uh, say, oh, this is going to be easy, right? Um, and were these services operating on public clouds before the acquisitions by Facebook? Um, so my, my, my insights mostly, like, it's all pre, prior to my time at the company. I have one year in the company. Mm -hmm. um, so for the... So yes, some of the services have their their own cloud providers supporting them. Uh, and and by the way, Facebook in in many in many segments, especially in hardware segments, we do partner with other companies. Not everything's fully private, right? Like we partner with companies around, just not necessarily with the, with the cloud providers. But um, so so as the company is acquired, the mission is to go to this common infrastructure and right. common stack with you and and. You'd imagine the migrations into pieces. We can do things like, look, storage. They use a cloud storage. Let's use the Facebook equivalent storage. So Facebook has an implementation, let's say, of MySQL. So, hey, let's use the Facebook MySQL instead of AWS MySQL or Azure MySQL. So we break down com almost component by component and figure out where they should, should migrate to. 
Oh, if it's container, if it's containers, container management system, use our container management system that we host. We have management, managed Kubernetes, just like, I guess, AKS or EKS, right? Kind of thing in, 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 uh, in Facebook. So those migrations, again, I wasn't there, but um, they, they take a long time. They're, they're not simple things because you need to keep the business running. You can't, hey, let's shut down Instagram for two months <laughs> and, and migrate things over, right? So, so it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's a journey uh, from, from what I understand, but, um, but the, things, um, we, the way we organize company, and that might be Sphyto, is there is there's all these product teams. So Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, et cetera, Facebook.com, right? The app, et cetera. So, and then there's the infra team, which is a huge part. So that's where the part I, I work in. And the infra team serves all of them. They're all, we treat them as customers. We, we, it's almost as if we're like a little private cloud, but those are our customers. So we need to make sure we adopt their needs. So if Instagram either needs to migrate some legacy stuff or build the next thing, we need to say, okay, how can we support them? Like I was mentioning in passing here, which is our ads infrastructure is evolving. Their machine learning. So we're like, okay, what's what's the what what do we need to do in terms of machine learning, inference, and training, and and creating models, and then we plan for that. So we we serve we serve our customers uh, that way. I see that you guys are like uh, Atlas, you know, supporting the entire world, you know, on your shoulders. You know, if, if the world here is Facebook, I mean, if 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 your team, you know, screws up, you know, then I guess it it, it could. You know, not hurt just Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and I mean, WhatsApp is freaking huge around the world. Yeah, I mean, and and I think all of us, I have a deep appreciation in this history. Is like Facebook, the main challenge is scale, like for sure. Like, uh, how can we do all of that in scale? Uh, the scale is is the the massive part. But just like like I, you know you've seen this in all cloud providers like uh you see azure go through downtime you see aws go yeah. through downtime you see google cloud and facebook is now immune to that either right exactly. like there 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 are incidents that happen too and same reasons developers and systems are the same around the world you you can go down and say eh, yep someone introduced a bug yep this this thing went out without proper testing and or the notification wasn't there or we didn't stage the rollouts and, and, and it's the same reasons. That's not different. Like the, the way we operate as an industry is very similar. Like a developer can work in any of these companies, like, you know, at Facebook and Microsoft, they're on call shifts. You're going to be woken up in the middle of the night to go debug something. You're going to be, uh, uh, you know, there is an outage and you're going to drop everything and, and see how you can get things back on track. So that's not different. I think. Facebook and, and Azure, uh, the place I worked in, like we work exactly on how we make the outages as rare as possible, right? Like how do we have disaster recovery in place? How we have like uh, fallback options, how we have like traffic redirection. So we're prepared for, for crazy, crazy stuff. Like there was a bunch of, um, floods that impacted some of the Facebook data centers last year. And, and there was no perceived downtime on the outside and those things are just fantastic to see that you can have a flood that uh you have to cut down power on the data center you have to literally wow. contain <laughs> the, the physical up. problem uh, and 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 there are tons of folks like redirecting traffic and and 
and doing a lot of manual steps to avoid the ultimately you from going on a I don't know a video call with your grandma and being interrupted, right? So so we we care about those as if those are money transactions, right? That's that's the the business of Facebook. So I, I want to talk a bit about. Um, well, we talked about, you know, tooling, you mentioned uh, one of them, which was Twine, which is one of the internal tools that you use at Facebook. So, but um, f Facebook as, as well as Microsoft, they have, they do a lot of work on open source projects, right? So for example, um, if I'm not mistaken, you were involved with Akita, um, the autoscaler for Kubernetes when you were at Microsoft. And, you know, mm -hmm. Facebook has, I guess its most famous open source project is probably React. My first question is, do open source projects that are supported by companies the size of the Microsoft or the FANG ones, do they have an advantage in terms of, uh, I guess, mass adoption and, uh, you know, growth? Yeah, um, I have two, two, two different angles to that question. If you're, if you're a public cloud provider and you're going to provide a service that's based on an open source standard, like... Kafka or, or, I don't know, Kubernetes or um, some of these other things that have open source behind it. I think it's it's important that you, one, you support that open source because there is popularity to it. There is momentum behind it. There are ideas behind it. So I think that's very critical. And, and I can say for Azure, I'm pretty sure Google is the same. Um, it's very important for them to be invested in that community, not only adopt that standard, but contribute it back. Right. Make sure the standard evolves, right? So you need to be active contributor to to those standards. So so um, it it's part of a strategy. There's uh, and there's there are whole teams that focus on open source at Microsoft for sure to make sure we have the right strategy on open source. At the same time, though, if you're running a business like a public cloud, there are ways for you to how do you win, right? Like you just support the standard, and the other provider also supports your standard. Who's gonna win? So you need to add your your differentiation, right? Your flavor to it, your integrations, your, your tooling. So there's always gotta be something for you to make that interesting on your own world. Maybe you make Kafka, but the most reliable message delivery. We never drop anything, right? The protocol is the same, but so so the um, so I think it's very important. The other the other one is if we wanna rally, if you think it's the future of technology is such that everybody's gonna rally around it, we feel like we should put that in open source and, and, and go to a foundation and do it that way. So I think in Kada was that was the idea was, look, this thing should be something we should, people should just have. It's not something that, it's not where we think um, um, we should, we don't need necessarily the differentiation, we want everybody behind the standard, and then we can take it and make the implementation at, in Azure the best one possible. So, so I think there's that give one for new projects. I think there's, if there's an opportunity for people to contribute, go open source, that will be the thing and adopt the standards. Make sure you don't make people change their language to speak to you in the cloud provider in a different language. I think you should adopt the language that's in open source. If that's a popular project for, um, for Facebook's a little different because there is no bringing back like there's no we don't adopt an open source standard only if it's helps the business move forward it's not oh, because customers will come with it because it's not a, a, a public cloud but if it helps the business move forward there's no problem adopting open source at all in the company and they, they do adopt 
but they're more big into the opposite, which is they think, hey, look, we developed this. We feel like if we put the standard out there, others will come and contribute, and it's going to be way stronger than if you build this alone. Right. I think um, one one that I find fascinating is not my area at Facebook at all. Um, I think it's called the Open Compute Project, where they put the hardware specs out in the open, and anyone of the different providers can come in and say, let's design the computer of the future, the server of the future, in a collaborative way. So there's a lot of power to it, to bring a lot of companies and heads together to it. So so Facebook believes in it and donates projects to, to open source to, uh, and keeps contributing to them. So this is very related to the the latest question that I had in mind, which is, so if, you know, companies, you know, the FANGs or the Microsofts, are they on the lookout for open source projects, you know, to either incorporate or and support and contribute? Or are the projects they sponsor mostly ones that are born as internal tooling that they decide that, you know, why don't we just liberate the code and have more people contribute and make it stronger? I think both happen. I think, uh, let's say we go into a new space and um, it's a space that we haven't been um, and and. So, so when I was Azure Functions, I led the the, uh, the product management or PM team right there. So in there, we're thinking of how to advance the business. So there are two ways: you can build from scratch with your R and D, right? You can partner with someone; they build it for you. You can acquire, right? Or you can adopt something. You can say, "Look, let's take this technology. Let's build. There's momentum behind it." So. For us, we'll, we'll look into all the options. There was, uh, if there is technology out there that helps us get our product to get more market share and advance the product, we we would. Um, um, and, and if we were to contribute to an existing standard, we would too. It's just, it just depends how much momentum there is. There's some projects that are started but don't have a lot of momentum, doesn't have buy-in. So sometimes it might be easier for us to build something instead of adopting that thing that's not really developed. But some things, look, there's momentum, there's tons of contributors, there's no way, like there's no point in us creating a new open source standard to compete with one that already has everybody contributing to it, right? So so I think, um, um, at least I can say from Microsoft, I really cannot speak for, for Google and, and AWS from that, uh, in that matter, but we're really trying to adopt the most common standards and then the things that we thought was the industry should collaborate on, we donated. Uh, I think Dapper is another one that's open source. I don't know if you looked into that. Yeah, yeah, so Dapper. Not, I was part of, super interesting, but they made it open source from the get-go as well. Uh, there's a huge, over the years, was one of your first questions, what has changed? I think the open source culture became really strong at Microsoft over the years. Like, uh, hey, look, let's leverage open source, let's donate, let's put things in open source, let's get all the contributions in. So, so I think um, it's it's a change. It's a, it's a I think it's a very healthy change we've seen in the company. What would you? What are the things that? Well, you personally, but also companies like Microsoft and and I guess Facebook and companies of that size. What are what are the sorts of open source projects that would you know would uh, you know get their attention? In the in the world I was looking in, the open source project will get attention. Is things that extend your product. Things that will take, will take what you built in directions that you didn't think about it before. So the reason, although that one we built, but the Kubernetes auto sailing thing was Kubernetes doesn't have this component. You know, you can't scale from zero to n and to n down to zero. Therefore, that seems complementary to Kubernetes and, and bridges the gap from Kubernetes to serverless, right? So 
So that's why it's interesting. So if there are things like that, that complement what we have and we haven't built, those are ones catch our attention. Things that look like true innovation that we haven't built. In a way, one way to think about it is within the company, we do hackathons. All companies do hackathons. To come up with new ideas and cool things to do. I think of the open source field in in the same way. It's a bunch of, some are very advanced things, but some are like, hey, this is a good thing to incorporate to the product. Let's, let's try to adopt that, that technology. So that's, that's the way I, I would look at it. Now for my final question, I want to ask you about the future. What do you think, what's in store um, for the future in tech? You know, which direction do you see that the industry, the industry is heading? You know, you know, the good and the bad, the positives and the negatives. Uh, looking at the, looking at the patterns from recent past, right? Uh, um, I think for sure the levels of abstraction have been going up, right? We went from on-prem to cloud, from cloud in cloud, like VMs and VMs, paths and serverless and stuff. So I think that trend will continue to grow. When you think of the total footprint of the cloud, I think more and more we're going to have paths and serverless uh, managed services, if you will are going to grow faster than the, than, than the other ones. They're both going to grow because the cloud's still growing overall, but they, those will grow, grow faster. That would be one direction, I think. I, um, I, I think it was great to see like how Kubernetes, the way Kubernetes picked up in cloud, like how, how quick it is, because there's always this trade-off between how much convenience and control you want to have. You can have the super yeah. convenient service, deploy my code, don't worry about anything, I want super crazy control. I want to control every single person, their echoes, they're going to access this code every time. And I want to log it and I want you know, specific hardware, specific regions kind of thing. So, so I think a managed services, like, uh, back to your point on containers, managed services for containers are going to keep growing, but I think serverless is going to grow. I think in the past, if you asked me this question. I got this question asked differently, which is, is serverless going to take over the world kind of thing, right? Which is extreme. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the case. I think it's going to be proportionally bigger than what it is now. But I think uh, the diversity of options is really what folks want. They do want sometimes to have their container with controls. Sometimes they want to just deploy a website, like a pass type of stuff. Sometimes they want full-on uh like an opinionated programming model like functions because that's the easiest way to get the job done. So I see all these areas growing, uh, but hopefully not as much on-prem, not as much like just standard uh, VM uh, is what I think is going to be in the future proportionally. Okay, Eduardo, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, have this conversation with us. It has been a pleasure. I've certainly learned a, a lot of things, you know, with regards to you know, Microsoft and how things work uh, inside Facebook. So um, it's great that to see that there are some responsible people making sure that WhatsApp doesn't uh, collapse. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, man, so wish you all the best. And uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks, Mario. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. It's always great to you know reflect back on serverless and the cloud trends and all this. And yeah, and um, we are in infra really. We focus on infra being as reliable as possible. So yes, feel free to continue using the products, and we'll take care of you. <laughs> all right. Bye, bye, Eduardo. All right. Thank you, Mario. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode of Rocket to the Cloud. If you liked the episode. 
don't forget to click the like button and subscribe to our channel. If you're listening to the podcast version, don't forget to subscribe as well. And let me remind you that this show is brought to you by Booster, the open source initiative by the Agile Monkeys. So don't forget to visit the links found in the description for more information. Until next time, have a good one. What 